Okay, so we're talking about the gospel. We talked about what the gospel is, and then we talked about how you respond to the gospel. And now we're going to talk about the uniqueness of the gospel. Not like the, the, the Christian gospel versus the Muslim gospel or the Buddhist gospel. No, the uniqueness of the gospel that is the gospel against anything else that might portray itself as a gospel, okay? All right, so I'll lay a quick little foundation here in the Great Commission. You're probably all familiar with the term Great Commission, but essentially the Great Commission is what Jesus told the church just before he ascended to the right hand of the Father. It's like the last things that he said. You see it in Matthew chapter 28. You see it in Mark 16. You see it in Luke 24. I don't know that you see it necessarily as explicitly in the Gospel of John, and you see it in, the, in chapter 1 of Acts. Like, when you're about to go, hey, I resemble that remark a little bit, right? I mean, you can't know. I have like 30 sermons I want to preach in the next two weeks. I'm not going to do that today. But, but the point is, when, you, when you're ready to go and you know your, your opportunity is done, you don't speak about frivolous things. You speak about the things that matter. So Jesus commissioned his church just before he went and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And it, it looked like this in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. So he gives us, he gives us a perspective, it, Matthew does, that Jesus has all authority. He takes his church. He says, the implication is that in, in my authority you go and make disciples of the nations. Mark, at the end, in chapter 16 and verse 15 says, Jesus speaking again, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And at the end of Luke, chapter 24, verses 45 through 47, we read, Then he opened their minds, Jesus, he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So we have a mandate from Christ, a co-mission, right? And lo, I will be with you always. We're not doing this. It's not a singular mission individually. It's a co-mission. Me and you, you and me, us and Jesus. Co-mission. Foundation. What he told us to do. So the gospel is our mission. Disciples are the outcome. With regard to the gospel, hear me, no additions, no subtractions, no distractions. No additions to the gospel. When you add to the gospel, guess what? It ceases to be the gospel. When you remove from the gospel, guess what? It ceases to be the gospel. And when you're distracted from the gospel, then that power, that mission that we've been given ceases to be the mission because we do the mission of the distraction and not the mission that we've been given by God while we have time on this earth to do it. Amen? Amen. Okay. So just a little bit quick review. And, and every single time I describe the gospel to you, 
I use it in the words that are in my heart that time. So if you went back and looked at my notes from a week ago or two weeks ago, and you say, but you described the gospel this differently. No, I use different words probably, but I, it's the same gospel. And I think the reason the Lord is having me use so many words is for us to understand there's different ways you can describe getting saved, saved, redeemed, regenerate, um, the gospel, but they all have to mean the same thing. So first, the gospel, the good news that rebellious, sinful people judged in their sin as unrighteous and damned to the eternal wrath of God can be restored to righteousness, forgiven their sin, reconciled to their maker, and restored to his glorious likeness through the redemption made possible in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. But that's only half the equation. Sorry, I made my screen a little too dim here. I can't hardly see it. Okay. So then, how is that gospel applied to my life? How does it actually become effective for me? By responding in faith to God's offer of salvation, redemption, reconciliation to himself. This faith establishes covenant relationship and must include both repentance towards God and faithful trust that the offering of Jesus Christ on their behalf fully satisfies their sin debt to God. My sin debt to God, your sin debt to God. It seems like a lot of words, it's not. You're dead in your sins, you're judged to the eternal wrath of God. Jesus came, offered himself a sacrifice such that if you would express faith, you could then have your sins accounted to Jesus and the wrath associated with those sins poured out on him and not you. How do I respond in faith? What is faith? Repentance and believing in that what he did solved your problem. Amen. It's that simple. But it's, but it's only that. Okay, so... No additions. Well, first of all, let me just go backwards a second. Let me give you a scripture and a little words that, that speak to the gospel is not fluid but specific. It's not, well, you know, but this or but that. No, no, no. The gospel is specific. Specific. No additions, no subtractions, no distractions. If you want to get a good sense for this, you should read the, the book of Galatians. The whole book, it's amazing. I was looking for a scripture in Galatians. I have a lot of scriptures from Galatians. But a thought came to my mind this morning. And I was looking through Galatians. And it's a, it's a substantial scripture. So I was pretty sure it would be highlighted in my Bible. So I'm just scrolling, looking at chapter by chapter of Galatians really quickly. And literally just looking at the highlighted parts painted the picture of the whole letter of Galatians to me. It's never happened before. Remember I say I struggle with being a bullet by bullet guy, but not so great at big picture? God painted the big picture for me as I'm scrolling through looking for a particular verse. I went backwards to the front and missed it, went front to back and found it. The whole thing lasted about a minute. It was awesome. So read the book of Galatians if you're, if you're curious about gospel, not gospel. Okay, so in, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, Paul's speaking to, there's only one gospel. He's speaking to the Galatians. He says, I am amazed that you are... Matter of fact, I said Paul. Can I just say God speaking to the Galatians? He's just wiggling Paul's lips. Okay. <laughs> he wiggled your lips so nice today, by the way. That was great. <laughs> I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, Paul and his people, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, 
he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Now, he could say this to us too, couldn't he? If you preach a gospel that's contrary to the gospel that's the gospel, the gospel that has the power to save, you are to be accursed. But wait a minute, I, I just wanted to you know, tell people something that would make them happy. I, I didn't mean to do a mean thing. It's like, yeah, accursed, right? It sounds harsh. Why is it so harsh? Because the gospel is the, it's the foundation of everything. It's the way back. Okay. A different gospel is no gospel. You have to understand that. When somebody says words like, are you ready to get right with Jesus? You want to go to heaven instead of going to hell. What they're telling you is, I'm about to share with you the good news of how that can be. You be careful. Well, you don't need to be so careful. But, but be careful, because what you are about to hear may be no gospel at all, in which case it can't save a person. They can respond however they want, and when they stand before God, they will not be saved, because they did not enter into covenant in the way he offers covenant. A different gospel is no gospel. Now, I want you to see... I want you to see if you can follow my logic, because sometimes I think my brain works different than everybody else's brain, because it all seems so clear to me, and when I talk about it, all people do is get confused. So, see if you can follow my logic. If there can be counterfeit Gospels, then there must be a genuine Gospel, right? Any changes to the genuine that Paul preached are no Gospel at all. Therefore, the Gospel has to be specific. When people say, well, you know, you make it too hard or you're, you're legal about it, I'm like, wait a minute. If there can be counterfeits, they're counterfeit only to the genuine. So if you don't know the genuine and you know about these other things and you don't know the genuine, you can't know that they're counterfeit. The fact that there can be a counterfeit, a false gospel, says that there is a, a true gospel, a genuine gospel, and then it's, a, it, it's really incumbent upon us to press into God, to draw near to God, he'll draw near to us, and he'll give us revelation when we chase him with all of our heart. He says, I will let you find me. Amen. And, and, and part of that is the revelation of the truth, because you cannot find a detailed articulation of the gospel any place in the New Testament. But it's there. Dangers of a false gospel. To the hearer, it lacks the power to save, causing their faith to be vain or of no value. You can put your faith in Allah if you want. And when it comes time to figure out whether there was any value to your faith, here's what you're going to find out. There wasn't any. It was vain. You could be Buddhist. You could be atheist. I guess, you know, you don't have any faith, except you do because atheism is a serious religion. Um, The danger to the hearer of a false gospel is it cannot lead them to God. The danger of a false gospel to the preacher is that they're to be accursed. So we shouldn't be afraid, but we should be careful with the gospel. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, so now, no additions to the gospel. Let me use Galatians 3, 10 through 14 to set up Galatians 5, 1 through 4. Galatians 3... 10 through 14. For as many as are the works of the law, as many are people, for as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law 
to perform them. Now that, excuse me, now that, excuse me, twice, now that no one is justified by the law, justified is another one of those words. No one is saved, no one is reconciled to God, no one is redeemed, justified. No one is justified by the law before God is evident. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Let me just give you a quick, I mean, probably it's obvious to you, but it took me a long time to get this stuff. The one who is going to live, that live is be righteous before God, is going to live eternally with God under the precepts of the law, has to keep the law. So anybody who chooses self-righteousness, that's what that is, self-righteousness, has to actually be perfectly righteous as God himself is righteous to, to live according to the law. So he's given an option. You can't do it, but he's given, there's an option there that exists. You, if you could, you could be righteous before God by keeping the law. But there's another righteousness that comes from faith. The righteous Man shall live by faith. Why? Because he can't live by keeping the law. Verse 13, Christ Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. It's important to understand the promise of the Spirit is the seal that God places upon you. When, when you go to buy a house, like John and Margie just bought a house. Before they closed on the house, they made an um, earnest deposit, right? You probably did, you know, $10, $15, something like that probably, right? And, and you did that as a seal to the, the deal that you made to buy that house. Now, what you got is access to that house when you come together and close with the rest of the money. What they got was assurance that you're actually going to do that because you just put skin in the game, right? So they take the house off the market. Nobody else can come now because you have a purchase agreement sealed with that earnest money. When, when you get the Spirit, that's God's earnest money. That's, that's his deposit on you so that you know that you're sealed and you're, you're, you're ready for the ultimate redemption that will happen when you go to be with Jesus. So, so when somebody says, well, how do you know if a Christian, you can't always know this, there's ways. How do you know if a person's a Christian or not a Christian? There's only two types of people in the world. There's Christians and there's not Christians, right? They're born again or they're not. They're saved or they're not. They're redeemed or they're not. They're regenerated or they're not. Pick the word you want to use, justified or not. How do you know? That one has the Holy Spirit, that one doesn't. That's it. If a person does not have the indwelling, not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues one, the one that says, when I express faith to God, he deposits his spirit in me. If you have the Holy Spirit and you die today, you spend eternity with God. If you don't, doesn't matter how many times you've been to church, doesn't matter what you said, what you prayed, if that, whatever it was, wasn't actual faith responding to the actual gospel, you don't have the Holy Spirit. You're not born again, you're not saved, you're not reconciled to God, you're not, you're not, you're not. The Holy Spirit is the seal that God places on those that are his. Amen. Yep. So Paul contrasting righteousness before God. Our righteousness before God. One is possible, the other is not. 
the righteousness that is self-righteousness by keeping the law is not possible. That's a whole other teaching, but you all know that that's true. The one that is righteousness because of faith is the only righteousness that's available to mankind to be reconciled back to God. So the issue Paul is addressing with the Galatian church is the false gospel that, excuse me, that mixes faith and works. Adding works, adding works to the gospel, personal effort to faith as a necessary element to becoming righteous before God. That's what he's dealing with. There's this, there's this righteousness that comes by faith. Somebody comes in and tells you, no, 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 you got to be a Jew before you can be a Christian, so you fellas need to have a little surgery. Right? If you agree with that, then what you're saying is the righteousness that comes by faith is insufficient because it requires some act on your part, other than faith, to enable it to create covenant between you and God. That's what he's dealing with. It's important to understand the distinction is unto righteousness. And then, you know, circumcision, I wish it was, you know, you had to do something on your finger, but. If, if, a, if a man chooses to be circumcised for cosmetic reasons, it means nothing to God. It doesn't matter. But when a man chooses to be circumcised, or a person says, I have to keep this rule, or I have to be good, it nullifies faith and grace. Okay? That's what Paul's dealing with with the church. So, in Galatians chapter 5, and verses 1 through 4, Paul explains the effects of adding to the gospel. In this context, Jewish ritual, Jewish law, Jewish practice being necessary along with the gospel for a person to be saved. Is that clear? Say if it's not. Joey, is it good? Okay, good. Thanks, Joey. Okay, so now Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. How many times do you hear that in a sermon? And, and quite frankly, the out-of-context ways are probably generally true. Like, when I got saved, I didn't look at pornography anymore. When I got saved, I stopped cheating on my expense reports. When I got saved, I quit cursing. Like, there was a certain word that forced its way out about, I'd get two other words. Hey there, blank. How are you? Blank. I mean, it was like always on my tongue, this nasty word. Profane, icky. It went away. So did Christ set me free for the sake of that freedom? It's a benefit, but that's not what this is talking about. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm. Do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. What, what is it that he freed us from? A yoke of slavery. What's the yoke of slavery? The keeping of the law. He set us free that we don't have to keep the law in order to be righteous before God. The freedom is from the law, specifically from the curse of the law, the law of sin and death. If you sin, you die. That's law. Every human being is under it. Every human being, unless they choose faith in Jesus Christ, in which case they're not anymore. They're under a different thing called grace. The Galatian Christians have been set free. They have been set free from the law of sin and death by responding to the gospel in faith. Paul is asking them, why are they now wanting to go back 
under the unbearable yoke of the law. Because a false teacher came in and told them they had to. And now they're having to decide what to do. They're saved. They're under grace. Christ, his sacrifice, has benefited them. Listen to what Paul says next. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. He touches every base, right? It's by grace you are saved. But you don't have grace anymore because you're going to do it on your own. In Christ Jesus, but you don't need Christ Jesus because you're going to do it on your own. He touches every necessary base to make sure that these people understand you have a choice to make. Why in the world you would yoke yourself to the law to find righteousness before God makes no sense to Paul at all. But can you see how deceptive deception can be? He he wrote this whole letter because they were considering adding works, adding their own righteousness to the gospel, and then somehow being actually saved when they're already saved. Severed from Christ, fallen from grace. Now, some people say, well, they were probably never saved. It's like, well, I say, I don't think so. I think they were saved. How can I be severed from Christ if I wasn't actually already in Christ? How can I fall from grace that I don't have? How can Christ now be of no benefit to me if he wasn't of some benefit to me? So he's not talking to people that are, that are unsaved, trying to figure out how to get saved. He's talking to people that are saved, that are about to get themselves unsaved, because the faith that they would have would be in something other than the gospel that's specific, the only gospel that can save, and now their faith will be vain. Essentially, what God is saying through Paul is, You can be righteous before God by the grace of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Or you can attempt to be righteous before God through your own self-righteousness. But anything added to A, the righteousness that comes by grace through faith, nullifies the gospel and requires you to be perfect in B, self-righteousness, to have relationship with God either now or eternal. I mean, it feels to me like I might be kicking a dead horse, but it's so important that this is part of your DNA, that you understand this. Because that's the gospel that can save you, and that's the gospel you need to share. Okay, so you can see that additions to the gospel, they don't tarnish the gospel. They nullify the only true gospel that has the power of God and the salvation. Right? If you add to it, if you make it more than it is, it's not just, oh, it's harder now. It doesn't exist anymore for that person. Okay, no additions. Let's talk about no subtractions. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 and 2, and then I'll expand on how we know what I'm telling you we know, but it's very interesting that 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2 also points to the specificity of the gospel, that there's not multiple gospels, that there's not twists on the gospel. There's only one gospel. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. Now, the Corinthian church has been challenged by false teachers just like the Galatian church was challenged by false teachers. So they're, 
they're trying to decide which gospel they're going to put their faith in. The one that Paul gave them or this new one that's come from these other people who we know to be false teachers. Okay, Paul speaking. Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved. If. Huge conditional statement. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you then, unless you believed in vain. Let me break that down, because the steps are important. Paul references the genuine gospel that he preached. Remember in the other place he said, if even I or my people or an angel of God came to you and preached a gospel different than the one I preached, right? So he's saying, I preached the genuine gospel to you. He says, which you received, which means they had to respond to it. They received it. How did they receive it? By faith. Repent and believe. Trust. Faith. They received it. How? By faith. If they had heard the gospel and not received the gospel, then there's no salvation. Because the fact that the gospel exists doesn't make anybody saved. It's the receiving of the gospel in faith that makes a person saved. Say amen to me. Amen. Okay, good. Okay. In which they stand. So, this gospel that I preached, which you received, in which you stand. How are they standing? Righteous before God. Amen. They've been declared by God righteous through their faith in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. My gospel that I preached, the gospel, which you received, responded to the way covenant demands, in which you stand as righteous before God, by which you are saved. So that gospel is the gospel they're standing righteous before God in. It's the gospel in which they have their salvation. They have their salvation. If. If. Understand if indicates a condition, one or the other, this gospel or a different gospel. If you hold fast the word, the gospel I preach to you. So he's saying, now here you are. You're at this fork in the road. You have this gospel that you received. You stand righteous before God in it. You are saved in that gospel if you hold fast to that gospel. If you choose to go this way, no more. Unless, if, unless. And unless says, unless you believed in vain. What would bring vain faith? Faith in something that can't save you. That faith is vain, right? We, we could, like the Jews, did, the Israelites, the Jewish people did. Remember, Moses went up on the mountain and he stayed too long. They went to his brother. They said, Aaron, I don't know about that guy, your brother, but he might not come down. We need to find us a new God. Okay, everybody, give me your gold earrings and your rings. You know, you didn't get yours back that day. All that stuff. They melt it down and they mold a baby cow. And they say, this will be our new God. Now, don't that seem stupid? There's a million of these people. They're like, yeah, that'll be our new God. Oh, little cow God, you're so shiny. Oh, little cow God. It's nonsense. Except a million of them bit that hook. The Corinthians are about to, they're considering biting the hook that can't save them. The consequence of believing in other than the genuine, specific gospel Paul preached to, preached to them, vanity, vain, no value. So then, that speaks again to the uniqueness of the gospel. What's the issue? 
right? What, what is it? We knew in the, in the Galatian situation, they were adding to the gospel. I told you in this situation, they're subtracting from the gospel. What's the subtraction? For the sake of time, we'll, we'll zip down to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, same conversation, and we'll start in verse 12 and go to verse 17. Now, if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witness of God, witnesses of God, because we have testified that, of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So the subtraction that these false teachers bring to Corinth is there's no resurrection. That's a different gospel. All the rest of it, they could believe, but they've taken away the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a component of the gospel truth. And the minute that these people give their faith to no no resurrected Christ then the people that died in Christ, they stay dead. And those of us that think we're alive in Christ are, are still in our sins dead because without the resurrection of Christ, that's not a gospel that can bring you into salvation. So the subtraction is the resurrection of Christ. No additions, no subtractions. No distractions. Now, I'm going to pray a minute, because there are things that I say, and people hear something different than what I say. So I'm going to pray, and I ask you to, you don't have to do it out loud, but I ask you to be honest and and pray this prayer, that you will hear the words that I'm saying, not the twist that the devil puts on my words, okay? Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to speak your truth. I thank you that, that you've given us your word and we can test our thoughts and our emotions and our feelings and our beliefs against that which is rock solid and true. I'm thankful, God, that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword and it cuts cleanly. It doesn't leave gray area. It doesn't leave a mushy part between the bone and the marrow or the joint and the marrow. It, it, it between, I forget what else it says in that scripture, but it cuts cleanly, Lord, and that your word cuts cleanly and it gives us understanding. So, Lord... In the name of Jesus, Father God, I bind every lying spirit, every deceptive spirit, every spirit that would try to filter my words into something that they're not, that would misrepresent the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. The word gospel, gospel, it it, it means good news. That's like if you said, um, Pat, we're having a secret surprise potluck today. I'd say, oh, that's gospel. It means good news, right? Hey, Pat, you're going to hell, but you don't have to. Ooh, that's gospel. It just it means good news. And the word gospel is used very specifically, like we're using it now in the scriptures. But it's also used, not too much, but it can be used generally to describe something more than what I'm talking about today, the gospel that brings salvation, okay? But in general conversation, in the culture, in the church, 
the word gospel can mean anything that you perceive as good, as righteous, can be gospel. But that's not the content, that's not the conversation that I'm having with you. The Bible uses it sometimes, just a little bit. It'll, it'll expand it to mean something a little bit more. It's having a different conversation. That's good news. But the good news is that, that a the sinful, rebellious soul can be reconciled to his maker is the gospel that, that Jesus was telling us to go preach. Okay? All right. The problem, I mean, I'm looking at my stuff. I, I told you this kind of, but I want to read this. The problem is that the broad meaning is being used as the primary and obscures the true primary reconciliation, causing the gospel of salvation to be diminished behind the social gospel of treating others fairly. Okay, let me go and explain. There's a cultural distraction that's happening within the church. It has a name. It's called the social gospel. I think, it's, I think it's quite frankly planted by the devil because what he's trying to do is get people to focus on what's good to the distraction of what they've been told to do. And I'll show you how that, how that messes up and, and, and how we don't need to be concerned with the social gospel if we're concerned with the gospel that reconciles a sinner to God. Okay, so let me give a concession here at the beginning. It's not a concession, it's just true. Being Christian has certain social mandates, right? Social gospel, social mandates. We don't want to confuse them. Here's a social mandate. James 1.27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, religion is kind of a funky word in our culture today, right? Religion is kind of a four-letter word. If it's form without power, it's, it's kind of like religion is a bad thing. But when, when these guys speak of religion, they're saying, which rabbi do you follow? Who is the teacher that you agree with? So the religion is Jesus here, right? And so Christians look after those that can't care for themselves. We, we care for widows and orphans. Can I get an amen, Mr. Green? Right? I don't know about your widow work, but your orphan work is pretty outstanding. You know, the, the Christian is concerned with the orphan and the widow. Christians concern themselves with people that can't look after themselves. We, we, we stand in that gap. 1 John three sixteen through 18. We know, we know love by this, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but with deed and truth. You see, when we see a person who has a real need, we meet that need. Real needs like they're hungry or they're cold or they're naked or whatever they are. See, Christians look after the poor, right? That's a social mandate of being a Christian, scriptural. Here's one that's a little more um, socially charged right now. 2 Corinthians 5, I'm going to give you three scriptures along these lines. 2 Corinthians 5.16, therefore, now this is Paul encouraging, um, I can't think of the word, exhorting the Corinthian church. Therefore now, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. So the Christian 
It doesn't evaluate somebody by the flesh. They don't evaluate, ah, you know, I might like to be that person's friend, but they're too tall, or they're too short, or they're too yellow, or they're too white, or they're too Polish, or they're too Mexican. No problem, I love Mexicans especially. But, you know, once you become a Christian, your evaluation of it, what did Martin Martin Luther King say? That he dreams of a day when his children would be judged by the content of their character, not the color of their skin, right? Well, if you're a Christian, you're already there. And if you're not, then you need to get on your knees and call on the power of God to come and transform you in that area of your life, right? Okay, we don't, we don't judge by flesh. Colossians chapter 3, through uh, 9 through 11. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self. That's a statement. You have laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which, now hear me, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian. We don't even care if you're a Scythian. Slave and free man, but Christ is all in all. If you're a Christian... You don't make those kinds of distinctions. That's not part of our makeup, right? Okay, finally, Galatians 3, 26 through 28. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized, excuse me, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female if you are all one in Christ Jesus. Christians are not racist. Why? Because we've been clothed with Christ. Because we've put off the old man who might have been a racist and put on the new man who's created by God in holiness and righteousness of the truth. I had to look this word up. So, you know, if you don't know it, we have company (laughs) we're not racist Christians are not misogynist now that's not like you know you can't get your shoulders rubbed that's a misogynist a misogynist is someone who has hatred or would treat women badly because they're women that would be a misogynist But see, we're not like that because we don't even see the distinction of gender when we evaluate people. We don't evaluate you as a woman and you as a man. We evaluate you based upon your character. We don't look at you and decide about you in the flesh. So so we have to understand that Christians aren't racist. They're not misogynist. They're not oppressors. A Christian is not an oppressor. If someone is a misogynist and a racist and an oppressor, guess what they're not? Yeah, seriously. And the church might be full of people like that, right? And we could say, let's just say for the sake of it, that that guy right there in that second chair, him right there, racist, misogynist, oppressing person, right? And we we could say, you better repent. You better stop doing that because Christians don't act like that. And guess what would happen? He would act how you wanted him to act when you're looking. And he'd be a misogynist, racist, oppressing something when you're not looking you know why because 
You can't legislate righteousness. How does that person change? He gets born again. And then guess what he's not? Misogynist, racist, or an oppressor. Now, it may not happen in one second, but, but salvation happened in one second. And it's going to happen. And it's not going to be like 20 years from now he gets over racism. If that's the case, he didn't get saved 20 years ago. Uh, that's a different sermon. Then you'll have to preach that one. Christians are socially conscious by nature. Don't say amen if you can't agree with that from what I just said. But if you can, say amen. Right? Okay. All right. Christians are socially conscious by nature. Okay. All those things that I just said to you are not the gospel, but they are the behaviors of born-again people. The gospel is a spoken proclamation. Its fruit is a changed person who lives not for themselves, but for others. The biblical Christian lifestyle glorifies God and draws people to Christ. The gospel then describes the opportunity to be reconciled to God in covenant through Jesus Christ and the means, faith, to bring that reconciliation about. Are you tracking with me? Okay. Righteousness and morality cannot be legislated into a person's heart. It can only be the fruit of a born-again spirit leading to a transformed mind. You cannot legislate how somebody's heart is. It's wicked. It's evil. It's only going to be that way unless it's made new. It can't be fixed. It can't be altered and adjusted. My heart can be. There might be a dark corner that the enemy and my flesh want to bring out from my soul. That's not a problem. Not, not that it brings out the darkness, but that it can't be fixed. Okay. Righteousness and morality cannot be legislated into a person's heart. It can only be the fruit of a born-again spirit leading to a transformed mind. The unregenerate person, that's the one who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, the unregenerate person can be coerced into certain behavior but has no abiding righteousness to draw on that can produce change. What's the abiding righteousness? It's God in you, the hope of glory. Focusing on social justice movements can affect coerced behavior, but focus on the gospel is the only way to righteous social change one soul at a time. Now that seems like a long process, except for there's, I don't know, 40 people in this room? Guess what? If we each took one soul at a time, by the grace of God, then there'd be 40. Now there's 80. 80, 160. Heaven forbid, we might talk to two people. <laughs> Preaching a social gospel might feel good, but it is fruitless to make change. You have to understand, the social gospel is fruitless to make change. It can't make change. When you read the Bible, look at the end times. They're not going to be good. You can look at history, and you can see really bad, and it gets better. It gets worse, and it gets better. Yeah? Eli, you good? Yeah. Okay. Okay, so, so like we might have come from a little bit of a good, and now it seems like we're heading into a bad. Ultimately, God is going to take back his restraint. If there's any good, it's because of he's restraining evil. And he's going to let it go. And he's going to let evil rise up. You've heard of this thing called the tribulation, right? Then Jesus is going to come. 
the way the Jews thought he was going to come when, when we recognized his coming, and he will establish his kingdom of righteousness on this earth. Between now and then, it can ebb and it can flow, but it's not going to be heaven, no matter how hard we try or how many wokeness people we elect, it won't happen because you cannot legislate morality, righteousness into a person's heart. Preaching a social gospel might feel good, but is fruitless to make change. The born-again person, having responded to the gospel, will produce righteousness according to the scripture. First John says that if God's seed abides in you, you will practice righteousness. And if you practice evil, God's seed does not abide in you. Now, that doesn't mean you might never have a stumble. Amen. Hey, good job, Eli. You say amen all the time when I'm talking. Amen. Only the seed of God inside of a person can produce righteousness. If the seed is inside a person, racists will cease to be racists, oppressors will stop oppressing, haters stop hating and become lovers. That's just how it is. Seriously, that's how it is. This is it. I'm done after this. The gospel doesn't change the world. I hate to tell you that, but it's true. The gospel doesn't change the world. The gospel changes people. Changed people change the world. The gospel does... Amen. Amen. So, so are social matters important? Heck yeah. If somebody's going to kill a baby in the womb, we need, to, we need to stand against it. If somebody is going to judge a person because they're a woman and, and somehow mistreat them, we need to stand against it. If somebody is going to judge somebody and try to mistreat them based upon the color of their skin, we need to get in between those two. But at the end of the day, the person that's doing those things is not going to change without the gospel. Amen. And then they will change. And changed people will change the world one soul at a time. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father God, I thank you. I'm so, so honored, God, to have the opportunity to speak on your behalf. And I just thank you that your word is so true and it's so powerful. And the opportunity we have not just to be, have our address changed eternally from heaven to hell, but to be like you, God, to manifest your very character and your very love as we go from glory to glory unto the very likeness of Jesus Christ, God. We just thank you and we just ask you to continue that grace. Pour that grace on us that transforms us, Lord. That we would offer ourselves living and holy sacrifices acceptable to you. That we would be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we might prove your will, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In Jesus' name, amen.